We've been studying the lives of the patriarchs the last few weeks. Whenever we think about the patriarchs, we usually think about men who are in the faith hall of fame of Hebrews 11. We think of people who are paragons of virtue and examples of great faith for us. And yet when we look at these chapters of Genesis, we find that very often they are men of great failure. But even when they fail, they teach us very important things. Turn with, it, turn with me to Genesis chapter 25. And we're going to find this morning, as we study verses 19 through 34, two important lessons, two important principles of God's dealing with man, and two examples that we are to avoid. First, we'll look at, at verses uh, 19 through 26, and we'll find there two principles of God's working with man. Now, these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abram's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel the Syrian, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples shall be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. And afterward his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was sixty years old when she gave birth to them. Now notice in verse 20 that Isaac was forty years old when he married. It was not until he was sixty years old, as verse 26 says, that his wife had children. They had to wait twenty years for God to fulfill his promise to them much as Abraham and Sarah had to wait 25 years before Isaac was ever born. The two boys were born. The first one was named Esau, because there's some similarity between the word Esau and the name for Harry, and he came out as a hairy baby. Jacob came out, apparently bald, um, and they named him Jacob because it's very similar to the Hebrew word for one who grabs by the heel. And he was grabbing on to Esau by the heel, which they took to be a a foreshadowing, a sign that he would be a supplanter, or one who grabs by the heel somebody and pulls him back and steps in front, which is indeed what would happen with Jacob later on. Let's look at a couple of important principles in this section of God's dealing with man. Notice in verse 21, And Isaac prayed to the Lord in behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The first principle we want to notice here is that God is essential 
to fulfill God's promises. Now that may sound very trite and commonplace and obvious to you, and yet very often we as Christians live without a sense of dependence upon God. We live as if we can get through life pretty well until crises come along. But God wanted to emphasize to them that he was necessary for life. And that's why he made, made them wait for 20 years. God didn't make them wait for 20 years because he was cruel and he wanted to, to torture and torment them. But he was loving of them and, and, and therefore he wanted them to realize that they needed to depend upon God. They needed to learn to walk by faith. Isaac was the son of the promise. Through him, nations were to come. And a nation, the nation Israel, was to come, and through that nation to bless the whole world. And yet they'd been married for 19 years and no children. And it was getting obvious that there was a medical problem. Sarah, I mean, uh, Rebecca was barren. And this was the second time this had happened. Sarah, Isaac's mother, had also been barren. Rebecca, who was barren here, was God's individual selected choice to be Isaac's wife. God had chosen a barren woman. There were two barren women in a row on the line of promise. God arranged it this way because he wanted to emphasize that he is necessary to fulfill life, to fulfill the promises, his working. He wanted to beat it over their heads that they might learn the lesson and we might learn it through them. He wanted us to know that he is not like the God of the deist philosophers of the 18th century. They said that God is like a big clock maker. And he makes the clock and then winds it up, sets it on the wall and lets it run all of its own accord. They said the universe is like this. God got it started and he gives us some principles to live by and then we just kind of do our own thing. We live according to our own power and resources to try to do, trying to do that which is right. But God is trying to emphasize here that that's not the case. And from time to time, he works with us the same way he did with Isaac and Rebecca. He beats us over the head. He brings some perplexing circumstance into our life so that we might know for sure that we need God, so we can learn to walk by faith. And then that walk by faith might extend to all areas of life, not just the crises. This is what happened to Wayne and Raleigh Wilson recently. Wayne had taken a janitorial position here a year and a half ago when we needed a, somebody to fulfill it. But he wasn't really trained or adapted towards that work. He was just trying to serve us. And we decided that, that it would be better for him, uh, after that was had, he had helped out in that way for a long time, to find something more that, that he would enjoy as a long-term career. And we set the end of March as a, as a deadline, which gave him four months to look for a job. And he looked and he looked and he made application everywhere and nothing opened up. And finally something opened up and it was a, his home church back in Santa Rosa, California. And they said, can you come be the janitor of our church and school? And he didn't really want to do it because that's what he's doing here and that wasn't really his thing. 
But that's all that opened up. And he wanted to work, wanted to uh, support his family, be responsible. Nothing else opened up. So finally he went down there the middle of last month. He just didn't feel right taking that because that really wasn't uh, where he was suited. And that wasn't what we had encouraged him to do. So he told them, no, I'm not going to take it. But he didn't know, he didn't have a job. And he and Raleigh and the kids were starting to get kind of nervous. You know, God, what are you doing? Where are we going to find work? How are we going to support ourselves? And they made that step of faith of turning down that job, which wasn't really right for him. Came back here, and he called up uh, Western Equipment, whom he had made application with. And they said, oh, by the way, we do have an opening now. It was a week before his job here was to expire, and so he found one there. And God was beating them over the head, putting them in a crisis situation, stretching them, making them learn to walk by faith, learn to trust him in that kind of situation. He does that with all of us from time to time. Puts us in perplexing situations. We don't know how to figure things out. We don't know what step to take. We don't know why the things are happening to us that are happening. But God does that to make us depend upon him to force us to our knees, not because God is egotistical and he needs our worship of him to gratify himself, but because we need it. He knows that life is only worth living if we live in dependence upon him. Only then can we be fulfilled. And therefore, he does this to make us depend upon him because he loves us and he knows that's best for us. Well, notice the second principle in this section, verse 23. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people shall be separated from your body. The one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. God said that the younger son, Jacob, would serve the older son, Esau. This was a reversal of the natural order of things. Naturally, the oldest son, would be the one who would be in charge of the family, the head of the clan. But here God had predicted before the, the children were even born that he was going to reverse things. And the principle for us to learn is that God is sovereign and he delights in choosing the unlikely to do his work so that his purposes can be fulfilled. He chose Jacob, the unlikely candidate, Well, some will say, yes, but Jacob was more likely because he was a man of faith, moral and upright, uh, an exemplary person, whereas Esau was a degenerate and a bum. And yet, if you study the rest of these chapters, you see that's not the case. Jacob was a bum, too. In the next verses, we'll see in a minute, he took advantage of his brother when he was down and made himself his birthright when Esau was not thinking clearly, when he was hungry and famished. In chapter 27, we see that Jacob lies to his father. He and his mother connive to deceive the father and play like he is Esau. And his father's old and his eyesight is, is fading. We see later on when he's in the household of his father-in-law Laban, God says, I want you to go back to the land of promise, the land of Canaan. And Jacob is afraid that God's not really going to protect him from his father-in-law, so he doesn't tell Laban he's leaving. All of a sudden, one day, he just sneaks out. 
And Laban chases him down and tells him how uh, hacked off he is at, at Jacob for running away. Jacob was a failure as a father. Ten of his sons sold Joseph into slavery. His sons Simon and Levi committed an ignominious act on the people of the city of Shechem. One of the men of the city had raped their sister, Dinah, and they told them that they would let her marry them if all the men of the city were circumcised. And while the men were all recovering from the circumcision operation, these two men snuck in the city and killed all the men. And they couldn't defend themselves. Judah, one of Jacob's sons, slept with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, slept with one of Jacob's concubines, Bilnah, who was the mother of of a couple of his half-brothers. Jacob was a failure as a father. He was a failure in many ways. God didn't choose Jacob because Jacob, he, he looked down the roads of history and he saw that Jacob was going to be an exemplary person. No, God didn't choose him for this reason. Look in Romans chapter 9. Hold your place in Genesis. Verses 8 through 12. We'll see the divine commentary and the choice of Jacob. That is... Paul is writing here, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there is also Rebekah. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Verse 11 tells us why Jacob was chosen. In order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. In other words, God was emphasizing that he is sovereign. He is the king. He's the one who calls the shots. And the way in which he operates most frequently is he delights in choosing the unlikely to work through. Paul emphasizes this in 1 Corinthians 1, as you know. He says, Consider your call, brother. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards or strong or noble. But God chooses the foolish and weak things of the world to shame the wise. God delights in choosing foolish people like you and me to do his work. He delights in reversing the natural human standards of value and worth and using the unlikely and shelving the likely candidates. Tell me, who would you choose to evangelize the student body at Oxford University. An elite group of people, highly educated, very intelligent, proud of their heritage, one of the oldest universities in the world, people who have a uh, special thing of pronouncing the king's English just so. Would you choose a shoe salesman who had dropped out of school at age 13 and didn't speak English very well? well? I wouldn't, but that's who God chose. 
when in 1874 Dwight L. Moody went to Oxford to evangelize. And the Oxford students heard that this Yankee hick was coming to preach to them, and they all gathered around. And he fulfilled all of their expectations when he got up before them, and he said, Men, don't think that God don't love you, for he do. <laughs> and the students all laughed at this ignorant man who couldn't speak English correctly, according to their standards. And yet God used Dwight L. Moody to bring scores of students at Oxford University during those weeks he was there to himself and start a revival movement among them. Or who would you pick if you wanted to reach uh, a recording star, a man who was at the top of the charts, who had sold millions of records and whose concerts were always sold out all across America? Would you pick a high school student I don't think I would, but that's who God picked when he wanted to reach Noel Paul Stuckey of Peter, Paul, and Mary. A high school boy went up to him after a concert. said, Mr. Stuckey, may I talk to you? And Stuckey relates that he's, he thought that the kid was having problems at home and he was patronizingly put his arm around and said, Sure, son, I'll help you out. What can I do for you? And the boy shared the gospel with him. And Stuckey became a Christian through that. I know of a, a high school principal in California, back where we came from, who had become a Christian and one of his students had come to him and started sharing with him the gospel. God delights in turning things upside down and using unlikely candidates. So if you think you're an unlikely candidate for God's work, take heart. Because God enjoys using such unlikely candidates. If, on the other hand, you think you really have it made, you might take a second thought. Some of us try to plot out what we're going to do to make ourselves useful for God. And we think, if I can just earn three PhDs, make a million dollars in business to establish myself in the business community, get elected to the Senate, and become a star professional basketball player, then I will have a position from which I can share the gospel with people and they will listen. Then God can use me. Or maybe you're not so pretentious. Maybe you just think, well, I have to first become the best racquetball player in the club. And when I learn to beat the socks off of all the other players, then they'll listen to me. Or maybe you think, I have to have the best house in my neighborhood, the most beautifully decorated, always immaculately clean, and then all of the women of the neighborhood will love me and look up to me, and then I'll have a platform from which to share the gospel. Well, God's the principle to us here that God's speaking is he reverses the natural order of things. And it's not through our human strengths that we become effective for God. Listen to Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11. God does not delight in the strength of the horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord favors those who fear him, those who wait for his loving kindness. In other words, 
God doesn't say, oh boy, here's a person who is strong, who is respected in his community. I'm going to see if I can get him saved and then I can do something in this world. He doesn't take delight in the strength of a horse, in the legs of a man. It's not in our human strength that God is able to work. But God takes pleasure in choosing the unlikely candidates for his work. And we become qualified when we simply fear him, when we respect him, when we believe him and grow in our relationship with him. And that's what he's emphasizing here to us. By choosing uh, choosing Jacob to be the one through whom the line of promise would continue and passing over Esau, the older brother, the one who is more likely. Let's look at verses 27 to 34 and we'll see here two bad examples. Fortunately, we can learn from bad examples as well as good examples. Let's read this section. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. You can tell as you read on the story the uh, problems that parental favoritism uh, brings. And when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field. And he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please, let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. The, the word Edom is very similar to the word for red, Adon. And therefore, is a, a verbal link. That's his, the nickname he got was Big Red. But Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First, swear to me. So he swore, crossed my heart and hoped to die, sickly needle in my eye. And he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The birthright in the ancient world was very important. The oldest son would be the head of the clan. He would get an extra share of the inheritance. In the Mosaic time, the oldest son would get a double inheritance over his brothers. And with this family, the birthright had profoundly spiritual implications because God had promised to bless his family and through this family to bless all the nations of the earth. And it was this birthright, with these spiritual implications, the chance to be the head of the clan, the head of the line of the promise, of the special nation of God's choosing, that Esau didn't care for. Before we look at Esau, let's look at Jacob and see what he did. Because he provides for us a a very bad example. Now what Jacob wanted to have the birthright was good. It was a noble thing in a way to aspire to that, to be head of this clan, to have that kind of spiritual impact and value to other people. But Jacob went about it entirely the wrong way. 
The example he sets for us is one who was seeking a godly goal with ungodly methods. Now, Jacob was the favorite son of his mother, Rebekah. And I imagine that Rebekah, in a way to kind of encourage him along, had shared with him the prophecy that God had given her in verse 23, that Esau would serve him. And probably at this time, as Esau comes in, he's hungry, he says he wants something to eat, Jacob is probably thinking, aha, this is my chance. This is how God is going to fulfill this commandment, this uh, promise, that the younger, that the older will serve the younger. Esau will serve me. And in fact, he's saying, Esau, get down your knees and beg. I'll give you some stew, but first, sell me your birthright. Give it to me in exchange for this cup of stew I will give you. He was looking for godly, a godly goal, but he was seeking to achieve it with an ungodly method. And we need to be warned lest we do the same sort of thing. It's a godly aspiration for us as parents to want our children to be submissive, cooperative, kind to their brothers and sisters, appreciative of us as parents. And God lets, uh, gives us certain ways that those kinds of ends can be achieved. But we often adopt ungodly methods to achieve the right end. Nagging, haranguing, ridiculing the children, being overbearing and ungentle with them. Or in a relationship, a marital relationship, we know that God wants to produce harmony and satisfaction in that marriage. And yet there, too, we often adopt ungodly methods to achieve it. Nagging, prodding, forcing the spouse to change to conform to my standards and expectations and desires. What we need to do is to, is to be patient, to work out and seek the godly goals in God's ways. As a parent, to love the children, train them, discipline them, set good examples for them. As a spouse, to love and cooperate and serve your mate. As leaders of the church, we are tempted to do the same sort of thing, to adopt ungodly methods to achieve godly ends. I just got a brochure in the mail this last week from a company that specializes in, in uh, helping churches out, and they had a whole line of, of things you could buy from them to help uh, boost your summer giving. As they said, as you know, as people go on vacation, the attendance and the giving drop during the summer months. And we have a special line of things that you can do to boost your giving. And they had brochures that we could put out in the lobby and all the hallways and classrooms. Be sure to give all your way during the summer. Bulletin inserts and three separate letters that the pastor could send the members of his congregation saying, I hope you have a good vacation and enjoy yourself. But while you're gone, please remember to keep giving. Now, in my estimation to buy all this stuff and use it would be using an ungodly method to achieve a godly end. God wants our needs to be supplied during the summer months, but God's way of giving is always to let the, let the needs be known, pray about it, and let him move in people's hearts. He says that we're not to give under compulsion, and therefore those of us in leadership are never to apply pressure, even if it's a subtle pressure of, of the uh, banners and 
and all this sort of thing, to make people give. Church leaders are often uh, tempted to, if their attendance is dropping, to adopt the, an ungodly method of, of making the church successful by hiring out certain Christian celebrities, bringing them in and having you all come because these celebrities are here. And that's not God's way. The church is not built around celebrities. That's not God's method. It's built upon the teaching of God's word and the functioning of people using their gifts and ministering to one another within the body. We all need to beware of following Jacob's example of seeking the right things but doing it with the wrong methods, adopting ungodly methods to seek to, uh, seek to fulfill godly ends and purposes. And there's a second bad example for us here, and that is the example of Esau. Because Esau undervalued spiritual things. He despised his birthright, as verse 34 says. And Jacob was wrong, but Esau is singled out for rebuke in this chapter. It's Esau who is rebuked and censored by the last statement. Esau despised his birthright. What Jacob did was wrong, but at least he was seeking godly ends. Around the year 1000, Olaf Tryggvason became king of Norway. He was converted to Christianity, and he sought to convert his whole realm. So he went around trying to persuade people by word of mouth, by his talking to them, to accept Christianity. To those who didn't respond, he pulled out his sword said, Now accept Christianity. And to those he didn't, who didn't respond and accept Christianity and submit to baptism, he killed. Now, this is tragic that a man would try to convert people by the sword. It's deplorable, it's lamentable to try to work, achieve God's work in this way in such an ungodly method. But you know who's worse? The king who says, well, I don't care what my servants believe. I don't care what they do. I don't care if they're converted to Christianity or not. Olaf Tryggvason was very wrong in the methods that he, that he used to try to achieve his purposes. But at least he had a zeal for God. At least he was interested in spiritual things. Jacob, here in this chapter, was wrong in the way he went, went about trying to, to get the uh, birthright. But at least he was interested in spiritual things. Esau is an example for us to avoid because he undervalued spiritual things. He just wasn't that interested. He comes to, to Jacob and he says, I'm famished, please give me some of that food. And Jacob says, you know, sell me your birthright. And Esau says, birthright, smirthright. You know, what's that to me? I'm about to die. Is he about to die and is sitting in his own house? Do you think his own mother and father would not find him after he passed out from hunger and come and prop him up and give him something to eat? He grossly exaggerated the situation because he embraced and insisted on satisfaction of his needs and desires right now. And he emphasized the temporal, the physical, the sensual needs. 
and devalue the spiritual. And the book of Hebrews refers to Esau, and the author of Hebrews quotes, uh, refers to this incident, and he tells his readers, don't be an immoral or godless person like Esau who st- sold his birthright for a cup of soup. And he's writing to them because they were tempted to give up Christianity and go back to Judaism so they could avoid persecution. Judaism was an officially recognized religion, but Christianity was a weird sect, and you get persecuted for that. And some of the, of the people, who had, Hebrew Christians who had professed Christianity, were tempted to say, well, it's just not worth it. And the author of Hebrews writes and says, don't be like Esau, who gave up his spiritual birthright for the convenience and the comfort of the moment. Don't be like that. But we follow Esau's example when, at times, we value social conformity and acceptance by our crowd above being faithful to God. There are times all of us have experienced at work or at school when the people are talking and they start ridiculing God and Christian morality and and, uh, religious things, and we have an inner sense. I should speak up here. I should say something. And yet we don't want to pay the price because we value acceptance by the people more than faithfulness to God. Or another way we undervalue spiritual things is not giving the time necessary for our own spiritual growth. As Christians, we need to study the Bible. We need to set aside time for prayer. We need to spend time in fellowship with others and such a way that we're encouraged and build one another up. And yet when we let these things get squeezed out by excessive television watching or sleeping in late or, or being over busy or overworking, then we show that we are undervaluing spiritual things. Now I'm not suggesting for you a particular regime of Bible study, prayer, and fellowship, but we all need these things. We need to make sure that we don't, that we're not like Esau and sell ourselves short. Miss out on part of what God has in store for us. Hanging on instead to the pleasures of the moment. Another way we undervalue spiritual things is by having a lackadaisical attitude about sin. Whenever we have the attitude, oh, what the heck, I might as well go ahead, it doesn't make any difference. And we can know that we are undervaluing spiritual things. The Bible says that whatever we sow, we're going to reap. And all of our actions have future effects upon us. And when we give in to sin that easily and have that kind of attitude, then we are selling ourselves short. If you wake up one morning and you feel crabby, and you say, well, I feel crabby today and I'm just going to be a crab, so there. (laughs) Then what you're doing is saying, I want to hang on to my natural impulses and I don't really care that much about what God says. We're selling ourselves short. We're selling out for a cup of soup. What would you think of a man who came home one evening from work and his wife told him, 
Honey, I've made for you an elegant dinner. We're going to have for hors d'oeuvres shrimp and crab meat crepes. Then we're going to have some marinated steak with mushrooms and asparagus with hollandaise sauce and baked Alaska for dessert. And he said, well, how long is it going to be? She said, oh, about 15 more minutes. He said, oh, I can't wait that long. And he goes over to the cupboard and he pulls out a cold can of chili, opens it up and stuffs it down. <laughs> you would think the guy was loony. He had lost his senses. And yet we all do that, don't we? When God holds out for us spiritual fulfillment, here's what I have for you. Joy, love, peace, inner satisfaction. We say, ah, that's not going to come immediately. If I give in to sin, I can get a, a thrill right now. We're selling ourselves short for a cup of soup like Esau did. And those of you who aren't married feel the hormones pumping. And you give in to sexual desires. You're selling yourself short, selling your spiritual birthright. When you men are on a business trip, you walk through the lobby and you see some pornographic magazines and you feel tempted and you think, oh, what the heck, nobody's watching, it doesn't make any difference. You pick up a couple and indulge your, your lustful fantasies. You're selling yourself short. You're having a lackadaisical attitude about sin. You're selling out for the, the cup of soup. Or if you have a temper, and you say, well, I don't care what the Bible says, I'm going to tell old so-and-so off. You're selling out. You're selling yourself up the river. You're undervaluing spiritual things, just like Esau did. And we need to beware, lest we as Christians adopt the values of the world around us. The world is somewhat similar to a big department store into which a crazy thief has, has uh, entered. Instead of stealing things, this thief has just switched around all of the price tags. So you can get a, uh, uh, a little tractor lawnmower for $5. You get a garden hoe for $850. You can get a mink coat for $0.59, cents, a pair of tube socks for $1,200. And all the values are all helter-skelter. And the world is like that. And if we're not careful, we will adopt the values of the world around us, not see things for their true value, and we'll sell ourselves short, like Esau did. Because he sold out. He embraced the pleasure and the satisfaction of the moment and neglected and despised the spiritual values that God was holding out to him for the future. And we have here in this passage then two principles that are very important for us to remember. One is that God is necessary to fulfill God's promises. We need God for all of life. Secondly, God is sovereign and he delights in choosing the unlikely person. So if you're an unlikely person, take heart. And if you are one who wants to trust in your achievements to be effective for God, beware. And we see two bad examples. Jacob 
who went after the right goals but with the wrong methods, and Esau, who didn't even go after the right goals but undervalued spiritual things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the lessons that you have to teach us through this section in Genesis. Lord, we need desperately to hear the message of each of these lessons. We know we're people who are influenced by the world around us where values are distorted and twisted. We thank you for your word, which directs us on the right path and re-instructs our minds to, and to lead us in truths of, and paths of righteousness. And we pray that we might be affected by what we've studied and heard together this morning. In Christ's name, amen.